You are listening to a sermon from Covenant Hope Church. Thank you for engaging with us. If you would like more information about our church family, please visit www.covenanthope.church. We pray that this sermon encourages and challenges you today. If you have a Bible, grab it and turn to Genesis chapter 7. We're going to start there this morning. As I told you guests, we're so glad that you're here this morning. We normally walk through books of the Bible because we want to know what God has to say and not what I have to say. And so we, uh, we walk through books of the Bible. We call this preaching because we believe that uh, the Bible truly does have something uh, to say to us and that we want to know uh, what it is and we want to figure out what that is. And so uh, what we're going to do this morning is we're going to be in the book of Genesis. We're going to continue our series that we have uh, titled God's uh, Story of Creation to Restoration. And uh, as we walk through uh, Genesis, what we want to do is we want to hear God's Word and then respond to it. We want to submit to it. Uh, we want to, to know it. We want to live by it. So as a followers of Jesus today, we want to clearly see God speak to us and hear Him and respond rightly. And uh, if you're not a believer today, we hope that this is a safe place for you, that you can see who God's people are, that you can see what the gospel is, and that you can then respond accordingly to that. Ask questions to see how God's people have been changed uh, by his word. And so as we start this morning, uh, and if you don't have a Bible, uh, you can grab one of those black hardcover Bibles in front of you and turn to page uh, four and five, uh, and you can follow along with us. We all want a righteous God, don't we? When we say that we want a righteous God, what we mean by that is we want God to take care of evil in the world. We want God to take revenge on those who have harmed us. We want God to do the things that we think He should do or the things that He ought to do. A righteous God does what He says. A righteous God takes care of his people. A righteous God is one that can be trusted. A righteous God is one that can be followed. But do we actually want this righteous God? Or do we just want to be God? Because oftentimes when we talk about God's righteousness, it's mainly focused on the things that we think are important. What, like I said, whether it's those who have wronged us. But when we have a righteous God, that means there can no longer be sin in the world. Once we come to the realization that God is all-righteous and all-powerful, it means that sin cannot last in the world. It means that sin must be dealt with. It means that sin cannot go on any longer. But when we say that we want a righteous God, do we understand that that means we can exist no longer? Do we understand that our sins must be paid? Do we understand that we are some of the source of problem in the world? Church, we come to Genesis 7 and 8, and for some of you it may be a difficult story to, to hear and to think about and to process. But it's difficult because we don't actually understand the, 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 the de depth, 
the deepness of our sin. And we don't understand how sin has broken the entire world. And so we come here to Genesis 7, and here's what we're going to see. God instructs Noah to enter the ark so he can be preserved from the devastating flood for God's recreation. God's going to save Noah. He's going to save his family. He's going to save certain animals from this destruction of the flood. But there will be a flood. There will be a judgment for sin. If God is righteous, then he cannot let sin continue. And so God, he's going to judge the entire earth. He's going to judge all of his creation. And sin will be wiped out. But if you're a follower of Christ today, that's not the last word. Yes, a righteous God must deal with sin. A holy God must. But a gracious God must also save his people. And so if you're a follower of Christ today, here's what you should know. God's wrath will destroy wickedness. It will destroy wickedness. But he, God, does so to deliver the righteous into a new worshiping community. Right? God doesn't just destroy sin for nothing. God destroys sin because he's trying to create, and he does, he will accomplish it. He will create a new community who can worship him rightly. This is what God does. And I, I worded that in the future tense because it isn't just in the past. Yes, God judged the world through a flood, but God will judge the world when Jesus Christ returns. So we now wait for that judgment. We now wait that salvation, that we one day will be a perfect people with our perfect God, and we will be able to worship Him forever with no sin. And that's because of Christ. That we now get to wait on that judgment. We get to hope and persevere in that gospel that He has given to us. And so, as we jump into chapters 7 and 8 this morning, I hope that what you see is that our God, yes, is righteous, and He will judge sin. For our God is also gracious, and He will save His people. And He will not stop at nothing to make us into what we should be, worshipers of Him. And so, as we... Uh, think about last week, what we, what we saw in last week's sermon in Genesis chapter 6 is that God saw the wickedness of creation, right? Sin had clearly, had clearly corrupted the world, so much so that there were horrendous things happening at the beginning of chapter 6. And so God sees that creation, and He laments it. He is broken by it, and God determines to destroy the world. And so now we pick up in the story where God is actually going to do what he said he was going to do. But also, last week we saw God set his grace on Noah. And that that grace was what produces righteousness. That we can't, can't muster up any righteousness of ourselves, but we in Christ, in God's favor, in God's grace, can be righteous. And so now, as part two, really, to last week, we're now able to see God's righteousness in, in where it should be and then 
receive grace so that we may walk in righteousness. And so as we walk through these two chapters, as we see God's wrath destroy wickedness, we also see him deliver the righteous into a new worshiping community. I want you to see two observations with two applications. Two observations with two applications. We're going to see the righteous will experience deliverance from the destruction of God. But we're also going to see the righteous will experience deliverance for a devotion to God. So, number one, the first observation, and we're going to start in Genesis chapter 7. The righteous will experience deliverance from the destruction of God. Look there at verse 1. Then the Lord said to Noah, Enter the ark, you and all your household, for I have seen that you alone are righteous before me in this generation. So I want you to see this. God is going to save one man and his family through obedience. He's going to save one man and his family through obedience. Look what he says in verse 2. You are to take with you seven pairs of female and its, a male and its female of all the clean animals and two of the animals that are not clean, a male and its female, and seven pairs of birds of the sky in order to keep the offspring alive throughout the earth. Seven days from now I will make it rain on the earth, forty days and forty nights, and every living thing I have made I will wipe off the face of the earth. God has said that he will destroy all things. And he comes to Noah, and he's, and, he's, and he's told him, I'm going to destroy everything on the earth. But I want you to notice very quickly, what does God do? God says, I'm going to destroy it, but he provides instructions for Noah to follow. Right? He, he provides these instructions for deliverance. And as we saw in Genesis chapter 6, Noah is, he's righteous. He is someone that we can look to as an example. Right? He's, he's received this righteousness from God's grace, but then he acts out that righteousness. It, it is both, yes, God has shown him grace, but now Noah lives that way. And so Noah receives these instructions so that God may preserve him so that God may save him and his family, so that God can save creation itself. And so although God has moved to destroy his creation, it's clear that he cares for it. Because there is one man, Noah, who has found favor with God. And it is Noah who receives these instructions. And, he, and what God does, he comes to Noah and he speaks to him. And he provides these instructions. Now, most of you are familiar with Google Maps or with Apple Maps or Waze or whatever uh, maps you like to use. Uh, at this point, I found that most of them at some point fail me and send me into a, a place where they've edited the road and I can't go any further. So that's happened to me multiple times. But if you click on uh, those maps, it'll show you probably three different ways. Here's your fastest way. Here's your shortest way. And here's the third way that we don't know why we give it to you, but it's there unless you want to go this way, right? That's, that's what Google Maps does. And so you see those three, and you can pick which one you want to go. But here's the deal with God's instructions. You can't pick which way you want to go. There's only one way to go. God's instructions are very clear. He's going to lay them out to know it. He says, this is how you are to do this. There are not multiple routes. There are not multiple ways to get this done. You must do this my way. Right? Now, God could have moved Noah into the boat. God could have provided a boat out of heaven. God could have done a multiple 
a myriad of things that, that, to save Noah and his family. God didn't have to have Noah build the ark, but God does. And God saves Noah and his family. He protects Noah and his family through Noah's obedience. And it's going to be really important for us in just a moment. God asked Noah to obey, to, to trust him. And look at verse 5. And Noah did everything that the Lord commanded him. Now, Peter tells us that it was a long time that Noah built this boat and got these animals into this boat. Now, I mean, you would think, you would think if Noah was a righteous man, most people probably would have seen him that way, right? And so Noah is building this boat. It's this really, really big boat. And you walk by and you're like, I wonder what he's doing. That's a really big boat. And, and, then, and he's finishing the boat. And you're probably wondering, I should ask him, what's happening? And so Peter also tells us that, that, that Noah was a herald of righteousness. He was a preacher of righteousness. So Noah was probably telling people that God's, God's uh, judgment was coming, that they could repent and receive the same protection that he's receiving if they receive God's grace. But they don't. And so then, I mean, maybe the boat thing's weird, but when you see animals coming out of the, out of the forest, and they're like getting on the boat, and you're like, no, there's nothing to see here. Let's just keep moving. There's no reason to be alarmed at all, right? So Noah gets, he, he's preaching, he's telling these people, and no, not one person, not one person responds. They had to bless Noah as a preacher. I mean, that, that wouldn't be really great. But what it shows you is it shows you the depths of sin here is that no one responds to God's grace. It was God's grace that God didn't remove Noah immediately and then flood the earth. He gave, he gave the world time. I want you to see that salvation comes through obedience. Obedience through one man. Noah's obedience leads his family into salvation. But we're going to see even here as as. Cody Hassel just read that God says that even after all this is done, the inclination of man's heart is wicked and evil all the days of his life. We're going to see in chapter 9 next week that Noah is not any different than we are. So although he saves his family through his obedience, Noah's obedience can't save us. But there is one man who God accepted his obedience. Jesus Christ, who now we as his family can be brought into salvation through his obedience. That's the gospel. That Christ was perfect. Lived a perfect life for us. It's not Noah's obedience that saves us. It's Christ. And so now we get to experience in that family salvation and deliverance. So Noah, look at verse 6. He was 600 years old when the flood came and water covered the earth so Noah his sons and his wife and his sons wives entered the ark because of the flood waters from the animals that are clean and from the animals that are not clean and from the birds and every creature that crawls on the ground and two of, of each male and female came to Noah and entered the ark just as God had commanded him seven days later the flood waters came on the earth now notice Noah did exactly what God commanded him to do Noah was righteous but God did exactly what he said he would do. God said, I'm going to send a flood. God said, I'm going to destroy the world. And it happened. God did exactly what he said he would do. 
God is true to his word. As devastating as that may be to us, God is true to his word. God will do what he says. He's going to keep his promises. But he's also true. He's also true to the promise that he made to Eve and to Adam. That there will be a child that comes from you who will crush the head of the serpent. That's why Noah is saved. Because God is keeping his promises. Because God is doing what he said he would do. Although in this moment, it looks like what is going to happen to humanity, God is making a way. And there will be a child. There will be a son who will crush the head of the serpent. And we know that son to be Jesus Christ. God can be trusted because he is the one who sent his only son into the world to die for you and me who did not, do not deserve it. This is the God that we believe in. This is the God that we can trust because he will deliver his people from destruction. And he's delivered us from the destruction of hell and separation from him. So God saves Noah through obedience. But God also sends the flood to judge all of sin. Look there at verse 11. And the 600th year of Noah's life, and the second month, on the 17th day of the month, on the day all the sources of the vast watery depths burst open, the floodgates of the skies were open, and the rain fell on the earth 40 days and 40 nights. On that same day, Noah and his three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, entered the ark along with Noah's wife and his three sons' wives. I want you to notice that this account with this specific numbering and times of the great flood, it's really important. Now, every uh, major uh, society, every culture has a, an account of the flood. And some of them uh, are a little uh, extravagant. Some of them are missing lots of details. But this one is very detailed because it's the, it is the story. It is the truth. This is history. We should consider it as history. It presents itself as history. Moses wants to show you at this point, at this time, this is when God said he was going to do it, and this is when he did it. God wants you to know that what he says he's going to do, he's going to do. And what he says he will do will come to pass. Even if we are in the future, we can look back on who, who he is and what he's done and to see that it is true. It's history. Now, I also want you to understand this, this paragraph of the story as this is the undoing of creation. We should read this in light of Genesis chapter 1. Right, so it says in chapter 1, God parted the seas, the waters, but now God will remove those barriers and let those waters crash in on themselves. Right, he moved the waters from the land, and now that water is going to crash back onto the land. But notice that there's two sources of water that cover the earth. Right, there's the springs of the deep, that's the Genesis 1 idea, but there's also this windows of heaven where God opens up the clouds and he lets rain come down. Don't miss this, though. These are the sources of the flood, but they are not the ones opening themselves. God is the one who is in control. Right? These verbs are passive. The skies and the depths are being opened by God. He is the one who's in control. 
He's the one who pulls the lever, so to speak. Think about it this way. God split open with his hands the heavens. God split open the depths of the sea and let the waters cover the earth. It's clearly God's activity. It's clearly God's judgment. It's clearly God's plan. He is reversing creation. Something that the earth has never seen before. Something that the earth has never experienced again. God undoes what he did in Genesis chapter 1. That's how bad sin is. When we look at Genesis chapter 1, everything was good. And it gets to humanity and everything was very good. And sin had so corrupted the world that he lets his creation turn back into chaos for a period of time. Because he wants to judge, he wants to make sure that sin is dealt with properly. So look at verse 14. They entered it with all the wildlife according to their kinds, all the livestock according to their kinds, all the creatures that crawl on the earth according to their kinds. Every flying creature, all the birds, and every winged creature according to their kinds. Two of every creature that has breath of life in it came to know and entered the ark. Those that entered, male and female of every creature, entered just as God had commanded him. Then look there. Then the Lord shut him in. The same way that the Lord opened the skies and the seas, the Lord shut the door of the ark. God is fully in control of this ark. Noah's not in control. I told you last week, this word used for ark is the same, same word used for Moses' basket when it's placed in the Nile. And remember, neither of those things can control themselves. Neither of those things have a steering wheel. God is the one who is in control. He's both fully in control of the destruction of the world, and he's fully in control of the deliverance of his people. Although it's horrific and terrible that sin must be dealt with this way, are we not glad that our God is in control to deliver his people? Noah had obeyed all of God's commands. He gets onto the boat. God shuts him in. And so God had, God had resolved to destroy all of creation but save life. And that's what he does with Noah. Look at verse 17. The flood continued for 40 days on the earth. The water increased and lifted up the ark so that it rose above the earth. The water surged and it increased greatly on the earth. And the ark floated on the surface of the water. And the water surged even higher on the earth. And all the high mountains under the whole sky were covered. The mountains were covered as the water surged above them more than 20 feet. So Moses has given us details here of this is how vast and how grand this flood was. That even the mountains were covered. And I want you to notice here in verse 21 the specific account of the pure destruction that this flood does. Every creature perished. Pause for just a second. Every creature perished. Those that crawl on the earth, birds, livestock, wildlife, and those that swarm on the earth, as well as all mankind. Everything with the breath the spirit of life in its nostrils, everything on dry land died. He, being God, wiped out every living thing that was on the face of the earth. From mankind to livestock to creatures that crawled to the birds of the sky, they were all wiped off the face of the earth. 
Only Noah was left and those that were with him in the ark. And the water surged on the earth 150 days. This is this devastation of sin in our lives. Sin will destroy everything that we have. It will destroy every piece of us. And if it doesn't, God will judge it. God will destroy everything that is broken and sinful. I want you to see the death and destruction. The terms of life in Genesis chapter 1, all these animals, humanity, they now are destroyed. They now are judged. They now no longer live. That's, that's the contrast to Noah who lives. Everything else dies. And so Moses tells us that the water surged 150 days. So you're probably wondering, what's the math here? So 40 days of water uh, was poured onto the earth, and it flooded. And then for 110 days after that, that's when the water began to recede. So 40 days reached the top of the flood, then 110 days for it to come back down. Even the animals, creatures who, don't, who cannot be moral, who cannot make moral decisions, they were affected by the consequences of overwhelming sin. They were provided on the earth, they were given to the earth. God makes them so that humanity would rule the earth, would subdue it, would bring it to its best, to its flourishing. And instead, humanity had brought sin into the world so much so that they would be destroyed. I want you to see the devastating consequences of our sin. We think that we can just keep going, that, that nothing's going to happen, no one knows, no one's getting hurt, but there will come a time when the consequences of our sin hurt us and those around us because it will find us out. People who were destroyed at this point, they thought it was fine. They weren't concerned with Noah building an ark. There was no reason to be worried. They lived life. But the consequences of sin will come for us. Particularly the judgment of God will come for sin. And here's the thing, church. Deliverance is only meaningful in light of judgment. Deliverance is only meaningful in light of judgment. If God's not going to judge the world, why are we worried about salvation? Why are we worried about being delivered? But if God will judge the world, may we find that salvation and find that deliverance because He is the only way and the only way out. So what must we do? If you are a Christian today, I want you to persevere in righteousness. I want you to continue to walk in faith. In chapter 6, we see that, yes, Noah is righteous, and we, and we see here in chapter 7 that he's the only one righteous. Right? He found God's favor. And we see that God's grace enabled him to respond in obedience. We can't produce any righteousness of our own, and it only comes through the power of God. But we can't be fooled into thinking that there's no use for righteousness. We can't be fooled into thinking, well, Jesus paid for everything, so I can just do what I want to. Or... Jesus paid for everything. Why does it matter? We cannot be fooled into thinking that righteousness has no purpose. Righteousness is the fruit that we produce in our lives so that we show the world that God's grace has changed us. 
and there's even a practical thing here. Sin will lead to destruction. Whether you're a Christian or not, it will lead to destruction. If you're a Christian, maybe not eternal destruction, but it will destroy your life here and now. And as I told you, in the same way that God let Cain and let his, Cain's family get what they want, God lets us choose what we want. Do we want our sin or do we want God and his gospel? The question we have to ask ourselves from, from this particular part of the story is, can humanity, can we pursue our own desires and be left to our own reckless ends? No. God will not let that happen. Our own simple desires will lead to our destruction, but God's desire will lead to new life, even if that takes destruction of the entire world. But church, also understand the final judgment is coming. Jesus is coming back. And when Jesus talked about Noah, he talked about this as an analogy for when the final judgment will be here. We live on the other side of the cross. We know that Jesus came for us and he died for us and he, he now has been raised to new life and we now get to participate in righteousness. But we wait for that final judgment. So may we pursue righteousness. May we live out the gospel in our lives. May we try to obey God with all of our heart, not because we are trying to earn salvation, but because we have been saved. Not because we're trying to make God like us or not to have good things in this world, but because we have experienced God's grace. That's true righteousness. That we get to demonstrate God's love and God's kindness to us. If the end is coming... What are our priorities? Right, when we know the end is coming, it changes our priorities, doesn't it? It changes how we live. If, if we know that this is the last time we're going to eat with this family member, it changes how we view that meal. If it's the last time we're, we're, we're going to go and play a sport with, with our children, it changes how we, how we play that time. What are our priorities if we know the end is coming? What are we pursuing? There are lots of good things in the world. Lots of good things. But oftentimes, those good things become bad things when they get a priority that's over top of the things God has given us. Like himself, our families, and the church. The gospel would spread across the world. Oftentimes, good things become idols because we're making them priorities where they shouldn't be, and we're pursuing them to their own ends. And so God's wrath will destroy wickedness, but we can receive His grace and walk in righteousness as we wait for Christ to return. Which brings us to the second observation. The righteous will experience deliverance for a devotion to God. We will experience a de deliverance for a devotion to God. I right, look at verse 1 of chapter 8. We're going to see God restores creation to new life. God remembered Noah, as well as all the wildlife and all the livestock that, that were with him in the ark. God caused a wind to pass over the earth, and the waters began to subside. The sources of the watery depths and the floodgates of the sky were closed, and the rain from the sky stopped. And the water steadily receded from the earth, and by the end of 150 days, the water had decreased significantly. 
The ark came to rest in the seventh month, on the 17th day of the month, on the mountains of Arat. Now look at verse 1. It says, God remembered Noah. Did he forget him? No. That's not what, that's not what that word means. When this word is uh, used in the Old Testament, it's talking about God's faithfulness to his promises. So, yes, in, in some sense, God is remembering his, his covenant with Noah, but it's not that he forgot him. It's in light of this covenant now, I will do something. It's an expression of God's faithfulness to his promises. It's a, it's a, it's a promise of deliverance that God is now going to act on. Right? Sin nor the consequences of sin are going to stop God from doing what he said he was going to do, which was keep his promise. Right? And those who walk with God experience deliverance. Right? We experience a deliverance from our sin. We will experience a deliverance from the wrath of God when it's poured out on this world when Christ returns. But sometimes that's a small group, or sometimes that's one person. There was a small group of Hebrews that were saved when they were delivered into exile. So look at what God does. God is going to remember. Look at, look at, look at what God does. God sends a wind to dry up the waters. Now it's again to call us back to Genesis chapter 1. Right? God's spirit was hovering over the face of the deep. Now God sends a wind. It's the same word for spirit. and So it calls us back to Genesis chapter 1. God is recreating the earth. He's now letting the waters, he's moving them himself, he's letting them settle, and he's bringing the creation back to where it needs to be. Right, the deep spring and the windows of, of, of heaven are closed, again, under God's control, and the ark now comes and rests on this mountain. So what's going to happen to Noah? Look at verse 5. The water continued to recede until the 10th month, and the 10th month, on the first day of the 10th month, and the tops of the mountains were visible. So the mountains that were once covered with water, you can now see the tops of them. Right, you, you, you probably know the story. Right, so, so this happens, and Noah, he lifts up uh, probably the, the hatch, and he can see some of the, some of the mountaintops, and he, sends out, he starts to send out birds. And so Noah sends out a raven. But he sends out a dove. Right, why does he send out a dove? Well, a dove is uh, a creature that would uh, eat uh, seeds and fruits and plants. Right, so Noah would know that if, if the dove goes out and it doesn't return, then it's found food and it can live. But if it doesn't have food, it's going to come back to him. And so Noah sends out the dove... And then look at verse 12. After he goes out and he doesn't find anything, verse 12 comes. After he had waited another seven days, he sent out the dove, but it did not return to him again. In the 600th first year, in the first month, on the first day of the month, the water had covered the earth, was dried up. Then Noah removed the ark's cover and saw that the surface of the ground was drying. What an interesting thing to see. Right, So much water had flooded the world, and Noah sees it drying. By the 27th day of the second month, the earth was dry. In the midst of the worst destruction the earth had ever experienced, God saved Noah, his family, and even the animals. God remembered Noah. He remembered his promise. 
But why did God do that? Why did God now recreate the earth that he had destroyed? Well, God is going to restore humanity to worship. Look at verse 15. And God spoke to Noah, Come out of the ark, you, your wife, your sons, and your sons' wives with you. Bring out all the living creatures that are with you, birds, livestock, those that crawl on the earth, that will spread over the earth and be fruitful and multiply. Remember, you've heard that language before, Genesis chapter 1. And Moses continues, they will multiply on the earth, verse 18. So Noah, along with his sons, his wife, and his sons' wives, came out. All the animals, all the creatures that crawl, all the flying creatures, everything that moves in the earth came out of the ark by their families. Notice that Noah leaves the ark the same way that he entered it, by the command of God. God tells him to get in the ark, and Noah gets in, God shuts him in. The waters recede, thanks to God's power. And at God's command, now Noah comes out of the ark. Right? At some level, Noah, could, he could have seen it himself. Hey, that's dry. Things have recovered. I can come out of the ark. Nobody waits on God. We don't know how long exactly he, he waits, but he waits on the Lord. He's patient. He trusts God. And the animals come with him. Now, look at Noah's response to God's grace and his deliverance. Look at verse 20. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord. He took some of every kind of clean animal and every kind of clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. I want to pause here. This is the first time that burnt offerings are talked about in the Bible. We're going to, we're going to see them more when you look at the book of Leviticus. But this is the first time that burnt offerings are mentioned. So what is a burnt offering? It's an offering where the entire animal is consumed on the altar. Right, there's nothing left. Some offerings were given so that uh, some of it can be burned up and some of it can be used by food or for food by the priests. But this burnt offering is one that's going to be wholly consumed by the fire of a sacrifice. And so now... Noah does this. And what you see in, in Leviticus is that these burnt offerings are given for sin or they're giving for thanksgiving. It seems pretty apt, doesn't it? That, Moa, uh, that Noah is thankful that he has been preserved, that he's been saved. But in many ways, it's also a sacrifice for sin because Noah is not perfect. Noah acknowledges that it's God's undeserved providential care for him and his family that he walked off of that ark alive. I don't know how many of you have been on a boat. I've been on a few. Uh, but my, my worst experience was on a 28-foot boat uh, for the span of about 13 hours when we, we went deep-sea fishing. And that boat, uh, one of its motors, there's two motors on that boat, one of the motors didn't work. And so I was praying really hard for God to get us back. I can't imagine, I can't imagine what Noah was thinking for 150 days on that ark, waiting, watching the world be destroyed. So when he gets off, when he gets off of that ark, he builds an altar and he thanks God because he knows that his life was that close to being destroyed if it wasn't for God. His worship here is prompted by God's actions, right? It was not like the pagans who worshipped 
or try to worship other gods because they worship gods to receive their favor. No, Noah responded with sacrifice and worship because he had been shown favor. Do you see the difference? God, uh, God is not being worshipped because Noah is trying to get favor. He is being worshipped because he's already shown him favor. And when we get those things messed up, church, we will just be running and running in place because we don't, we're not understanding the gospel and the gospel is not taking root in our lives. We don't obey, we don't, as I told you just a minute ago, we don't, we don't try to be righteous because we're trying to earn God's salvation. We're righteous because we have experienced God's grace. No one knew that he had already been shown favor. And so look at, look at how the Lord responds in verse 21. When the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, he said to himself, I will never again curse the ground because of human beings, even though the inclination of the human heart is evil from its youth onward. So this sacrifice is so pleasing to God that he says, I will never again do this. And God still knows. Even though the inclination of the human heart is evil from youth onward, he knows that, that people are sinful. This has not cured sin. But God says, I will not do this ever again. He says, and I will never strike down every living thing that I have done. As long as the earth endures, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summertime and winter, and day and night will not cease. God will not just uphold the earth. He will uphold the seasons. Right? God's response is that he's pleased. You probably don't know it, but he, he rested. This is the reward for a grateful sacrifice. Right? That God says, I will never again destroy the world. Right? God will, will be with his people. God will protect them. So what should we do when God's wrath will destroy wickedness? But we know that the righteous will be delivered into a new worshiping community. What should we do? We must respond by worshiping Christ. If you're a Christian today, you've, you've, you've already received new life in Christ. If you're not a Christian, though, you, you are not a part of that new worshiping family. If you're not a Christian today, you, you are not going to be spared from the judgment or the wrath of God. And that's what's being offered to us in the gospel. Just as God saved the human race through one man and his family, God saves humanity through one man, Jesus Christ. He's offering that to you. He's offering this chance to you to be, to be saved from your sin. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5 that if anyone is in Christ that is united to him, they've submitted their life to him, they've repented of their sin, they are a new creation. We demonstrate the ultimate new creation of God when we worship him. God judged sin by pouring out his wrath on Jesus so that he could create a final new creation. Us. That he could make us like Jesus. That he could look on us and he could see righteousness so that we may respond in worship. 
In the same way, as I told you last week, God is the same God from today or a thousand years ago. God is going to judge sin. He's going to pour his wrath out on sin, but he's also gracious. The same God that poured his wrath out on Jesus and now offers that salvation to us is the same God that's offering you salvation if you don't know him. And if you trust in him and submit your life to him, then you will be made into a new creation, just like what happens here in Genesis chapter 7 and 8. But our worship, our worship is in response to that new creation. Our worship is response to what God has done. Romans 12, 1 says this, Therefore, brothers and sisters, in view of the mercies of God, I urge you to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true worship. Worship is not just building an altar. It's not just sacrificing an animal. We don't have to do that anymore. It's much deeper than that. No, no, we offer our own lives as the sacrifice. In essence, we are the ones crawling up that altar, laying down and letting God consume us so that we may be made righteous in Christ. That we give ourselves, every part of us, every part of our lives, nothing's held back. That we now worship God. That you can worship God in every aspect of your life. You can bring Him glory. You can please Him in the same way that He was pleased by Noah's sacrifice. You're invited into worship. You're invited into the community of God. But you must confess and repent your sins. You must submit your life to Christ. It's the only way. Noah could have, he could have said, you know what, I think I can do this on my own. And he would have been destroyed. There was no other way but God's instructions. Instead, he listens and he obeys and God saves him. You can think that you have it all put together. You can think that you are right. You can think that there are no other ways. That you know it. But you'd be wrong. God is offering a way for salvation. And I pray that if you're wrestling with who God is, if you're wrestling with what God is doing, if you're wrestling with who Jesus is, He is the only way to salvation. And it is His word here that tells us of that salvation. And you're invited into this community. You're invited into God's family. You're invited into God's grace and His righteousness. Will you receive it? Pray with me. God, I ask that you would um, help us, that you would encourage us to, to live out this righteousness, to live a life of worship. But God, we're so distracted by other things, not, not bad things, but other things that take priority in our lives. And so, God, would you remove those? God, would you help us prioritize you and your church and the gospel so that our families may reflect the gospel, that our communities may reflect the gospel so that, that people will come to faith? God, you will do what you said you will, you will do. Christ will come back. He will come back for us, and then you will judge the world. And so, God, I pray that we can help 
other people know that this is true and that they will repent and turn to you? Will this place, will this church, will this people be a people who offer their lives as a living sacrifice, one that is pleasing to you, one that you will accept, both in our singing, in our praying, in our reading, in our living, in our cleaning, in our doing, in our jobs, in our activities, in every part of our lives where we see that as an opportunity to worship you. God, we need you. And I don't know if it's been more clear than today that we need you. And so would you be with us and would you keep us? We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Church, as the music team comes up, we've heard the story of God's judgment. We've also heard the story of God's salvation. So will you respond? Will you hear it and thank God through singing? Maybe you're dealing with some things from the passage this morning. Talk to other people. Share what's going on. Share and respond. Maybe there's sin that needs to be confessed. You can do that in your seat. There's nothing special, but these steps are open. If you need to come forward and pray before the Lord, we're going to sing together, and we're going to sing of the salvation that God has given us. So would you stand and sing about this God and what he's done.